Well, if you uh, want some encouragement, be encouraged in this. Uh, St. Albans, Vermont, where we moved from uh, to Mississippi, was minus 14 this morning without wind chill. <laughs> so. Well, good. Um, let me encourage you. Um, I don't have the, the words to the scripture up on the screen. Uh, to turn in your Bibles or app on your phone or tablet, whatever you use, uh, to uh, John 15. <clears throat> John 15, and we're going to focus in on just six verses today, uh, verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> If you were asked uh, to publish a paperback edition of the New Testament for mass distribution, and you wanted to summarize the whole message of the New Testament in just one phrase, what would you choose? It would be a hard decision, wouldn't it? My first pastoral ministry was in Belmont, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. And one of the missions that we supported was Bibles for the World. At that time, Bibles for the World had a very ambitious goal of mailing copies of the New Testament to people in major cities all around the world in the language of those peoples. Um, as a small church, we underwrote the publication of 100 New Testaments in Spanish. On the cover, colorful cover of the Spanish edition of the New Testament was the phrase, no hay amor mas grande, Spanish for no greater love. Since, as we'll see this morning, this phrase comes from John 15, the New Testaments that Bibles for the World produced actually began with the Gospel of John and then circled back around to the normal order, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, as you think of it, isn't that a beautiful summary of the message of the New Testament? No greater love. In our passage of scripture for today, John 15, 12 through 17, I'd like us to see three related thoughts. The priority of love, the privilege of Christ's friendship, and the promise of answered prayer. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so grateful uh, uh, that you have given us this opportunity to come together, uh, to worship, to listen to your word. Um, and Lord, even though, um, <clears throat> like Kyle, I'm going to be struggling with saying afternoon rather than morning, um, it's great that we are able to gather. And it's great that we're able to hear from you. Um, we know that, that the Bible isn't like any other book. That the Bible is a book that uh, is the very word of God to us. Uh, you speaking to us through your word, by your spirit. And so we are so thankful. And we pray, Father, that uh, as we spend this half hour together, that you would 
bless our time, uh, challenge us where needed, comfort us where needed. Um, Lord, we come uh, to listen to you, to hear from you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's such a short passage. Let me just uh, read it for us uh, as we uh, delve in. Uh, John 15, 12 through 17. <clears throat> this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask in my, of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. First, the priority of love. Last Sunday, Kyle said that if Christ's word abides in us, then naturally we will become obedient to Christ outwardly. I hope that you heard Kyle refer to our obedience as loving obedience, to separate it from fearful obedience or uh, legalistic obedience. What Kyle said is so critical. He said, the pulsing heart of our obedience to Christ is love for him. It's so critical that we understand these truths. So Christ calls us to loving obedience to his commands. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Back in John 13, we saw that Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When Kyle preached from John 13, the John 13 passage, he asked the question, how the command to love one another is a new commandment? Doesn't that ignore the old Testament command back in Leviticus, the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Kyle said that the newness comes in the quality of the love. We love as Christ has loved us. If we have known the love of Christ for us, we are commanded to love one another in like manner. In this morning scripture, both at the beginning and at the end, this afternoon scripture, both in the beginning and the end, <clears throat> we have this command repeated. Uh, the command that Jesus called a new commandment back in chapter 13. Back in John 13, Kyle said that Jesus wasn't commanding something that was impossible. Why? Because when we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, God does not just forgive our sins, as wonderful as that is. God gives us a new heart. He puts his spirit 
within us. Because of that, we have a new desire to follow the command to love, but also a new power to carry out that command. <clears throat> you see, it, it's only a crushing burden, that command to love one another, if, if we're doing it in our own strength. In those opening verses of John 15, Jesus has already told us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Zero, zip, zilch, nada. That's why Jesus has been wooing us to abide in him, to draw our power to love from him as branches draw their power from the vine. This is absolutely the only possible way to live the Christian life. Now, how did we get from Jesus telling us to obey his commandments, plural, to this is my commandment, singular? It's because all of the many commandments are summed up in the one commandment to love one another. At one point in his ministry, Jesus was asked to summarize the entire law. He summarized the whole law in two commandments. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how does that work? How does that single command to love one another replace all the commands of the law? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Apostle Paul explains it clearly in Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one to anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Sin is selfish. Sin is taking. Sin is self-gratifying. Love is centered on others. Love is giving. Love is living to benefit others. If I truly love my brothers and sisters in Christ, I won't do anything to take advantage of them. Instead, I'll be willing to give of my time, my energy, my money, and in some extreme cases, yes, even my life. My model is Jesus who laid down his life for his friends, even for those who were once his enemies. No Hayamar Masquerende, no greater love. It's impossible to imagine any greater love than Christ's love for us. Do you want a fuller picture of what it means to fulfill Christ's command to love one another? The Apostle John, the man who wrote this gospel, also wrote three letters which had been preserved for us in the Bible. John's first letter has a great deal to say 
about love. Here's just a sample from 1 John 3, 16 through 18. We know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So we've seen the priority of love. Now let's look at the privilege of Christ's friendship. Back when the events of John's gospel took place, what would usually happen to the people of one nation when that nation was conquered by another nation? Well, if those people were allowed to live, they would usually become slaves. So how does Jesus deal with those who were formerly his enemies when they come to saving faith? He calls them friends. When we come to Jesus by faith, he calls us friends. Amazing. He still expects us to obey his commands, but because we're his friends, he communicates to us what he is doing. <clears throat> Everything that he has heard from the Father. Jesus first communicated all that we need to know to the apostles. And they wrote it down, and now it's all laid out right here in the Bible. God's entire plan, how he's going to bring history to an end and set up his eternal kingdom, as well as how we are to live in that space until Christ returns. Now, don't hear Jesus wrong when he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. He's certainly not saying that we become his friends by doing what he commands us. He's not saying that we earn his friendship by our, our obedience. That would cancel out the need for grace. No, Jesus is saying that we demonstrate our friendship with him by our obedience. If we're really Jesus' friends, we will seek to do all that he commands, especially this command to love one another. As Jesus drew closer to the time of his death on the cross, the opposition of the religious leaders grew intense. They accused Jesus of all kinds of evil. They claimed that he drove out demons by the prince of demons. And there was another way they slandered Jesus' character. The religious leaders considered themselves to be those who were right with God and looked down on everybody else who didn't follow their rigid standards. Because Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners and other low lowlifes, they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> Yet what they meant as a devastating put down is actually a sweet truth. It can be sweet for you if you've not yet received Jesus Christ by faith. 
I've studied all the major religions of the world. There's no religion that offers what the Christian faith offers. Jesus Christ died in place of rebels like us. He rose again. He's reigning in heaven with God the Father. He's coming again to openly rule over the universe. And he offers us forgiveness. He, he offers to empower us to live a life pleasing to him and so much more. He offers his friendship. Friendship. Come to Jesus, repenting of your sins, repenting of your rebellion, embracing Jesus Christ by faith, the majestic, mighty Lord of the whole universe offers for you to be his friend. Wow. Jesus is the friend of sinners. This is one of those great truths that should revolutionize your life if you're a Christian. From the early centuries, the, the church of Jesus Christ has fought against false teachers who deny that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Many churches today speak of Jesus as just a good man, a wonderful teacher, maybe even a great prophet. And we need to fiercely guard the gospel truth that Jesus Christ is and was Emmanuel, God with us, that he's king of kings, that he's Lord of lords. And yet, we also need to embrace the glorious reality that he is the friend of all who come to him in faith. Dane Ortland, writing about the marvelous truth that Jesus is really our friend, writes, it is at our point of deepest guilt and regret that his friendship embraces us most assuredly, most steadfastly. He is the friend of sinners. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, then let him befriend you more deeply than you ever have. Open to him as you do to no other earthly friend. Let him love you as the friend of failures, the invincible ally of the weak. Wow. This is what I desperately need. God means for us to find such comfort and strength in the truth that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That as Christians, we are his friends. This has been a challenging time I think for every family here at Harvest. <clears throat> We've all had to deal for a second year with not being able to hang out with family, with friends, as we would like to. In just the past few months, many of you have dealt with COVID, the seasonal flu, and a host of other medical challenges. Your job situation has probably been much more challenging trying to figure out how to do things remotely. The whole school situ uh, situation has been difficult. 
whether you're a teacher or whether you're a parent. Some of you have had to deal with loss and grief. Some of you have, have been struggling with loneliness. Others have had to cope with deep disappointment that your life has not turned out the way you hoped it would. God wants for all of our challenges to drive us closer to Jesus. It's meant to be so comforting to our souls that Jesus is our friend. Even if we've always felt it, even if we haven't always felt his presence, he's been right there with us, within us by his Holy Spirit, walking with us in our challenges. I know that some of you have experienced his near, nearness recently in ways that you haven't before. As I read about the overwhelming challenges of our brothers and sisters in places where they are facing grinding poverty and intense persecution, many of them report that the experience of Christ's presence with them, uh, in them and with them, has sustained them. I'm convinced that I need to experience for myself much more deeply that Jesus is truly my friend, my best friend, even nearer than my closest earthly friend, Margaret. Even though I've been a Christian for 50 years, I have become more aware recently that my Christian experience is still way too much head and much too little heart. Although I still plan to be active in ministry as God gives opportunity, I want to focus my remaining years on earth developing a deeper, warmer, more intimate fellowship with Jesus Christ. Listen, I know from personal experience what a challenge it is to nourish your spiritual growth when the demands of career and family and just life press in on you. But even at your most busy stage of life, I would encourage you for the good of your soul to dedicate some time daily for Bible reading and prayer. Don't race through the Bible uh, just to check the box off a reading plan as I have done too often. On hectic days, I think it's much more helpful to read just a few verses of Scripture and let them soak into your mind and heart. Think, for example, of how richly packed the truth is in just these little six verses that we're looking at together this afternoon. I mean, you could soak on these truths for days, for weeks, and never exhaust all that Jesus is telling us. The main goal of our times in Bible reading and prayer needs to be meeting with our friend Jesus, reveling in his love and care, drawing grace and strength from him as the branch draws strength from the vine. Oh, I don't need to tell you, Facebook has so cheapened the word friend. 
I trust that you've seen that being Jesus' friend is a lot more than that, that it's one of the greatest privileges in the whole universe. We've seen the priority of love and the, the privilege of Christ's friendship. Now let's look at the promise of answered prayer. In these opening verses of uh, 17 verses of John 15, there are two promises of answered prayer. The first in 15, 7. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Oh, that sounds like a good health and wealth verse. It would be completely wrong, of course, to interpret the promise Jesus gives as a promise that the Father's just offering a us a blank check and saying, you just fill in the, the subject and the amount and it's yours. Fancy car, mansion, you name it. But what is the context of verse 7? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you and it will be done for you. <clears throat> In verse 7, the promise, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, assumes that the prayer comes from a mind and heart transformed by God's word. If our minds and hearts are being shaped by God's words so that our desires are more and more in line with the things that matter most to God, then we're not going to be praying little, cramped, self-centered, self-serving prayers. We're going to be praying big, bold prayers centered on the priorities of God's heart. As the other promise, the one in verse 16, makes even clearer. What's the promise in verse 16? So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Why isn't that an excuse to ask for a Rolls Royce or your, your own private island in the Caribbean? Well, what's the context? The context is you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God is promising us here that if our goal is to bear lasting fruit for him, he's going to grant our heart's desire. may not always look like we thought it should look, but he's always going to give us that opportunity. Doesn't that give us tremendous encouragement to plead with God for more and more fruitfulness? in our lives? We should probably ask at this point what fruit God is looking for in us. What kind of fruit should a healthy branch abiding in a healthy vine produce? God is at work pruning us to be more fruitful if we are living branches. What was the fruit that Jesus was talking about? I don't think that we want to pin down the definition of fruit any more than Jesus does. 
whatever the, this fruit is, it's meant to be plentiful and lasting. The fruit that Christians bear is anything eternal, anything of eternal value done in Christ's name for the Father's glory. And yet if we were to try to identify one central fruit that's in view, it would certainly be a harvest of new followers of Christ. This is certainly the fruit Jesus was speaking of uh, back in John 4, 36. If you remember the situation there, a Samaritan woman with a sketchy past placed her faith in Jesus Christ and then went back into the city of Sychar telling everyone she saw that she had met Messiah. She invited the villagers to come out and see the man who told her everything that she had ever done. A large crowd of people from the city came out to see Jesus. Here's the part of what Jesus said as the crowd, here's just a part of what Jesus said as the crowd came out to him because of the woman's witness. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. The fruit that Jesus was talking about was the fresh harvest of those who would be transformed by his grace. That's most likely the main fruit that Jesus has in mind in our scripture for today. What is more lasting than people who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of our sharing the gospel with them? So what have we seen today? We've seen the priority of love, the privilege of Christ's fellowship, and the promise of answered prayer. How do these things hang together? Well, every one of us was once a rebel against God, an enemy of Christ. You might have been an outrageous uh, rebel. You might have been a polite rebel. But each of us was or is a rebel, both by nature and by choice. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice on the cross, dying in our place to bring us to God. And when we receive Jesus Christ by faith, Christ embraces us as brothers and sisters, as his friends. As we face the many challenges of, of life, we are meant to, to find great comfort in this truth. Jesus says to us who claim to be his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. We show ourselves to be friends of Jesus by obeying his commands. And those commands are summed up in that single command to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. As we saw back in John 13, the radical, sacrificial love we demonstrate for one another is meant to back up our proclamation of the gospel, proving that we are Christ's disciples. As his friends, Jesus Christ lets us in on his grand plan 
to, re to redeem some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the face of the earth. As we embrace his heart uh, for his lost sheep here and around the world, he promises to answer our prayers for the accomplishment of his mission. My friends, my brothers and sisters, this is real Christianity, not the anemic version that we often see. As the world descends more deeply into rebellion and chaos, this is the robust faith that the world desperately needs to hear proclaimed and see lived out among us. People are desperate for love. They should be able to find that love in the context of a vibrant Christian community. That's what wooed me to faith in Christ. Be becoming convinced of the truth of the gospel and then seeing that gospel lived out in Christian community. Would you pray with me that God will make this a reality both in our own lives and in the fellowship here at Harvest? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these massive truths that we've um, looked at this morning. Father, these things could be uh, tremendously discouraging and disheartening for us uh, if you had not given us a new heart, if you had not put your spirit with us, if you had not called us friends, if you had not uh, proven your love uh, through your sacrifice on the cross, um, if you had not assured us that when we pursue your kingdom priorities and pray that your kingdom priorities be accomplished, that you will work and that you will work powerfully. Father, uh, I thank you for, the, for the, the love and care and concern uh, that my brothers and sisters here at Harvest show. Uh, Lord, um, I, I thank you for the reality of what people see in this fellowship. But Lord, we, we know also that we've not arrived, not as individuals, not as a church community. And we pray, Father, for your continued powerful work in and among us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.